Well, as most of you know, I spend most of my time teaching at Bethel University. Actually, I'm at the seminary, uh, but I spend an awful lot of time on the university campus as well. And one of the things that's amazing at teaching at Bethel, first of all, is I'm almost continuously surrounded by people that are younger than me. Now, for someone as young as myself, that's really troubling when you realize that virtually everyone you see and come in contact with is younger than you are. Even now, with a lot of the new professors we're hiring in the seminary, um, there's a couple profs that we've hired. I feel like I could be their father. They're that young. You know, and it's it's kind of troubling. But the other thing that's interesting about that is I get to keep up to date on all of the latest fads that are going through our culture because of the young people I'm surrounded by. And you might not be totally aware of all of the fads uh, that are going on out there, but I could share a few of them with you. One of them is wherever you walk on campus, you see young people with white cords growing out of their ears. And they will have wool caps on or little skull caps. And they've got these these white cords that just grow out of their ears. And and everyone you see, it seems like, has got these cords there. Of course, they're the the cords to their earphones for their iPods or their MP3 players that they keep tucked away. And the amazing thing is that they actually will talk to one another with their earphones in. So you'll see a group of three or four people and two or three of them have their earphones in and they're just talking away. And I don't know if the music is actually playing, but if they're at all like my kids, it probably is. It's just an interesting kind of fad these days. Uh, people even sit in class with their you know, earphones in and you're just by faith hoping that the music is shut off. Uh, another in- incredible fad is the, the way that young people or younger people and not even always young, but sometimes old people are wearing incredibly ripped, uh, worn jeans. Now, I'm not talking about jeans that came from Goodwill or some secondhand store. I'm talking about jeans that they pay $110 to $140 for pre-worn, pre-torn. You know, I mean, it's like you, when your jeans used to get torn, you threw them away. Now, if they're too new, you throw them away and you go buy $110 pairs of ripped jeans. It's it's very interesting, uh, some of the fads that are out there. But it's not just young people who follow fads. We know that. And all of us in our different uh, kind of younger generation phase, we followed fads as well. You think about the 60s when it was like the Beatles and Twiggy and some of those icons. uh, And everyone was wearing Beatle haircuts and go-go boots and mini skirts because of these icons that we watched. And then in the 70s, it was people like Donny Osmond and the Osmonds and the Brady Bunch and David Cassidy. Of course, that was the phase when young people had their hair over their ears. That was the big fat. Everyone had to have hair over their ears. And I'll never forget begging my mom and dad, please, if I could just have hair like Donny Osmond, you know, life would be perfect. You know, I'd fit right in. And she said, you know, no son of mine is going to be a hippie because she knew that the next step was drug addiction. And as soon as my hair touched my ears, you know, I was going to go down the tubes. But uh, then in the 80s, it was Dorothy Hamill and even sophisticated adult women were all wearing the Dorothy Hamill haircut and uh, men were wearing the power suits, the, the IBM red tie, white shirt, navy blue suit kind of uniform. And everywhere you went, you kind of saw the same thing because everyone seemed to be imitating everyone else. 
It's really interesting, isn't it, how it seems to be a natural part of our human makeup to imitate others. In fact, that's what Madison Avenue is all about, is convincing us to imitate others. And if you ever ask yourself why it is that we as people are so quick to imitate others and want to look and dress like other people. You see, the reality is at some level of our conscious or unconscious mind, we think if we dress like that person, if we have a haircut like that person, if we drive a car like that person or use an ink pen like that person, that somehow we're going to be like that person. And if they're successful and if they're popular, then if we dress like they do and wear the hair that they do, that kind of almost unconsciously we think that we'll kind of share in their success or their popularity or their beauty. But just wearing a certain kind of haircut or a suit doesn't change some of the intrinsic aspects about us. Those are all very superficial kind of changes that we make and they don't change who we are characterologically, who we are on the inside. Even churches today have got into this great imitation where every church, it seems, wants to imitate the successful churches like Willow Creek or Saddleback. And so now you find 150-year-old Lutheran churches that are trying to be, you know, Willow Creek with their drama skits and their secret set, a lot of great principles, But there's something very incongruent about going to a 150 year old Lutheran church in downtown, you know, someplace in Iowa. And all of a sudden there's this, you know, little skit that comes on. It just doesn't seem to fit. But people think and pastors think, well, if I do everything like Willow Creek does, then maybe I'll be as successful as Willow Creek and we'll have as many people as Willow Creek and we can build, you know, a $75 million sanctuary, you know, to fit the 24,000 people that come each Sunday. But again, those are often just superficial changes that don't change the inside of the church, that change the inside of who we are and what we're doing. See, rather than being people who are quick to imitate the latest fads that kind of culture uh, kind of uh, rolls before us, we're called to be people who conform to the image of Christ. We, we are called to be imitators of God. That's what we're called to do. Not to imitate the world, not to be conformed to the practices and the mold of this world, but to reject that in favor of being imitators of the living God that has been manifested for us in the person of Jesus Christ, who came as that babe and who lived uh, the life of a human being, all the while being 100 percent God. And when we imitate God, it's not a superficial imitation. When we truly begin to imitate God, it will change us from the inside out and we will truly transform who we are. But the problem is, how are we supposed to imitate a God that's invisible, that we can't see? How do you imitate a spirit being? How can we pattern our lives after the life of Jesus who lived 2000 years ago and we can no longer see in this world? Well, I'd like you to turn with me again in our study of Ephesians to Ephesians chapter five. We're going to look at verses one through twelve this morning. Ephesians chapter five, verses one through twelve. 
Because in these verses, Paul shares with us some of the ways that we can begin to be imitators of God. In fact, he shares three specific ways that we can imitate God. Even though we can't see him right now, we can imitate him. Because remember, Jesus Christ came to earth as the living word of God. And as we focus on God's word and read God's word, we see What God is like as Jesus imitated the father, as Jesus fleshed out for us who God really, truly is. And I want you to follow along as I read or follow along on the screen here. Ephesians five verses one through twelve. Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love. Following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God, of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have been filled. You have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. Now, in this passage, Paul really shares with us three ways that we can and should imitate God in our daily lives. And as we begin to consistently imitate God in these ways, it will produce profound changes in our lives from the inside out. And the very first way that he he suggests that we should imitate God is we should imitate God by walking in sacrificial love. Now, in verse one here of Ephesians chapter five, the very first thing Paul says is imitate God. The word imitate is a very interesting word in the original because it's the, the Greek word mimetes, from which we get our English word mimic. It it means to parrot someone's actions and behaviors, almost action for action, kind of like a, a mirror image, doing exactly what they do, exactly like they do it. And Paul says that we should be mimicking or imitating God, just as our children imitate and mimic us. You know, it's very interesting when our oldest son, Seth, was was very young and kind of was just starting to uh, to read, uh, you know, very, very basic. I'll never forget one day walking by the, the bathroom and the door was open and, and there was Seth, probably about four or five years old, sitting on the toilet with a newspaper, you know, kind of 
kind of like this, trying to hold up this big newspaper. And I thought to myself, you know, where did he ever get that? Well, you know, he was watching Sue and, you know, just <laughs> mimicking. You know, that's how we do as people, isn't it? We mimic our parents. You know, we, we just do what we see them doing. That's what's so dangerous about being a parent is our kids just pick up what we do. And the reality is, as followers of Christ, we're called to be imitators of God. And Paul tells us exactly what imitating God should look like here in verse two. He says in verses one and two, he says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. As we imitate God, the primary way that we do that is by living a life filled with sacrificial love, walking, choosing a lifestyle. That exemplifies the sacrificial love of Christ. And Paul even says, follow his example. Just as Jesus sacrificially loved, we are called to sacrificially love. Not just those who are lovely and likable, but we are called to love sacrificially even those who don't like us, even our enemies. That's one of the primary ways that we can imitate God, you know, you think about how did Jesus specifically love us sacrificially? Well, we're told in many places that that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 25 or 28. We're also told in in second Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it or you can follow on the screen. Paul says, you know, the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Jesus left the wealth of heaven, the perfection of paradise, and he came and willingly took on poverty so that through his sacrificial love, we would find redemption and grace and forgiveness. That's how Jesus loved us sacrificially. You see, we live in a world today that encourages us to, to seek out our own pleasure, to pursue self-interest, to advance ourselves. And the Bible teaches a message that is exactly the opposite of what our culture shares with us. Rather than serving ourselves and making ourselves number one, we're supposed to serve the other and consider them more important than ourselves. You know, rather than seeking our own self-interest, we're to seek the interest of others. We're supposed to sacrifice our lives for the benefit of those around us following the example of Jesus. And yet in the culture in which we live, that is very, very difficult very unpopular, and you'll be given a thousand and one reasons why it's not reasonable, rational, practical to live with that kind of sacrificial love. It is so easy to be shaped and formed by the mold of this world rather than walking in sacrificial love and serving others instead of serving ourselves. 
Anyone can look out for themselves. Anyone can look out for number one. But it takes someone who's filled by the Spirit of God and who is striving to be an imitator of him and of his son Christ who will lay aside self-interest, lay aside their own personal greed and selfishness to serve other people. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Bruce Kennedy, but Bruce Kennedy's a man that's in experienced incredible success in his life. About 25 to 30 years ago, he took over a tiny, nearly bankrupt airline and turned it into what we now know as Alaska Airlines. It became a very, very successful airline. In fact, one of the most profitable, one of the most uh, excellently run airlines in the world. There came a point where he'd increased the revenue of that airline over tenfold. He was making a a very, very generous CEO salary, had all the perks of a top CEO, had a personal driver, had a beautiful home, had all of these things at his disposal. And then at the peak of his career, the peak of his earning power at 50 years old, he decided he truly wanted to imitate God and truly wanted to follow Christ with his life. And so he resigned from Alaska Airlines to become the CEO of Mission Aviation Fellowship. There was no salary. Bruce had to go out and raise his own support. He donated much of his financial resources that he got from Alaska Airlines into Mission Aviation Fellowship. The budget of Mission Aviation Fellowship was less than 2% of the budget he was used to overseeing at Alaska Airlines. And yet he gave himself, threw himself in to being the CEO of Mission Aviation Fellowship. And people asked him in newspaper articles and on morning news programs, why in the world would you walk away from Alaska Airlines to to go lead this Mission Aviation Fellowship? They didn't even know exactly what it was or what it did. He said, listen, I have been blessed enough to see people who have sacrificed their lives in the swamps and the jungles of the remotest part of this world so that they could serve other people and take the good news about Christ to other people. He said, I really don't feel like I'm making a sacrifice at all based on the sacrifices I've seen other people make. I feel this is an incredible privilege that I have to serve Christ in this way. Not a popular thing to do. People thought he was nuts. People questioned his rationality and his good sense, all because he was serious about following Christ. In fact, in another interview, he said, I keep talking about being a sacrificer and loving God through making personal sacrifices. I felt it was about time I started practicing what I was preaching. Radically changed his entire lifestyle as he began to truly imitate Christ and walk in that kind of sacrificial love where he was considering others more important than himself, laying a lie, laying aside his self-interest for the interests of others so that he could truly reflect Christ to the world. Well, that's one of the ways that we can be imitators of God is by walking in sacrificial love, choosing that kind of lifestyle. But secondly, Paul says that we need to walk in moral purity. We need to be people who choose a lifestyle of moral purity. Look at what Paul says again in verses three through five. He says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. 
Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. When Paul says or mentions in verse 3, sexual immorality, that word in the original is the word pornea. We get our English word pornography from it. And it covers the whole gamut of sexual immorality, not just, you know, sexual intercourse or fornication, but things like voyeurism and and looking at at pornographic things and uncontrolled lust. It's all covered under the banner of this this word um, pornea. And Paul says that there should that, that such sins have no place among God's people. But. Did you notice one of the things that he throws in here that isn't necessarily a a sexual matter when it comes to morality? Do you see what that is in there? Something that we kind of like to just hop on over. He throws in greed with sexual immorality. Have you ever asked yourself as he's going through this sexual immorality, impurity, and then all of a sudden greed? He talks about obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ. Why does Paul throw in greed in the same batch there with sexual immorality? The reason is because the root of greed is exactly the same as the root of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, regardless of the form it takes, has to do with trying to please and satisfy yourself sexually through inappropriate means. And what he's saying here is that greed is economic immorality in the sense that when we're greedy, we're trying to satisfy and please ourselves materially and economically through illegitimate means, just like we try to satisfy ourselves sexually through sexual immorality to Paul and to God. They're the same thing. They're immoral. They're wrong. Now, there are branches of the Christian church that would read these verses and focus almost exclusively on all the sexually immoral aspects and not even mention that that greed is lumped right in there. It's the same to God. We might say, well, gee, you know, why do we focus on all the sexual sins? Because we say to ourselves, well, you know, even though we might struggle in that area from time to time, there's not a real high likelihood that I'm going to be a prostitute or that I'm going to commit adultery or that I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And so it's easy then to kind of focus on that and point at others, homosexuals and others who struggle with these kinds of things. And yet I think sometimes we ignore the greed component because, man, that starts getting a little dicey, doesn't it? That starts getting a little closer to home, might actually step on a few toes if you start talking about greed. You see, it's very interesting here in America, in our culture, how we are encouraged, I believe, to embrace economic immorality and to become, in a sense, greedy. Greed has to do with trying to satisfy all of your wants and likes, not just your needs. And that is sinful in God's eyes. 
And we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing in this area? I think when it comes to sexual immorality, we have become so desensitized, even as Christians, that today Christians are watching in their homes on television programs that Christians 30 or 40 years ago would not have even dreamed of watching. The sexual innuendo. The double entendres, the coarse jokes and talks on the most popular sitcoms and programs, for the most part, are disgusting. I often imagine bringing a Christian from 50 years ago and sitting them in front of the TV for family night as a Christian family and and just watching them turn every color of green and pink and yellow as some of these programs are on and going, what church do you go to? Are you sure you go to an evangelical church, an EV free church, a Baptist general conference church? Wow, things have changed. But it is so insidious and so constant and so all pervasive that we become literally desensitized to those forms of sexual immorality that we willingly participate in passively. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to economic immorality. We have become so deeply embedded in our consumer culture that that we are totally desensitized to what is a legitimate need to maintain our life and livelihood and what is a like and a want that is totally superfluous to to living a, a healthy life. And they're both equally sinful to God. And it's time that the Christian church begin to recognize that that is the case. And it's not just sexual immorality that God is concerned about, but it's economic immorality as well. Almost the entire Old Testament is God's design to maintain social and economic justice for those that don't have, for the for the cast outs, for the marginalized. And we need to recognize the truth of that. I want to just read one passage that kind of reminds us of the importance of this. And you don't have to to follow along or anything. And I, I, I read this at my own risk, but Jesus said it. So I'm going to read it. And it's in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. And just listen to what Jesus says. He says, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will say, will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to the least to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me drink. I was a stranger. And he goes on and on. 
Then they will reply, Lord, when did you ever when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. This matters to God. And particularly at this Advent season, when we celebrate the coming of Jesus who left eternity and who left all of the riches of heaven to embrace that poverty and so that we could become spiritually wealthy. We need to be reminded that that is a part of what it means to be an imitator of Christ. And then finally, and this is. Uh, kind of the capstone for this, uh, Paul says that another way that we become imitators of God is by walking away from deception, walking away from deception. Look at verses six through ten. Paul says, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Paul says one of the ways that we can imitate God is to walk away or to resist any kind of deception when it comes to the issues he was just talking about. He's saying, don't listen to people who would try to excuse the sins and behaviors that I've just told you about. And how do people do that? Well, today we don't call it homosexuality. We call it an alternative lifestyle. We don't call abortion killing babies. We call it choice. We don't call pornography and and filthy movies what they are. We call it freedom of expression. We don't call rampant materialism and greed what it's really called. We call it consumer confidence or capitalism or whatever euphemism you want to use. You see, we don't call having fornication or having sex with uh, unmarried partners what it is. We, We try to encourage safe sex. You see, there are all kinds of ways we as a culture make excuses and try to rationalize away all of these sins. And very often we as Christians can even begin embracing some of those excuses and rationalizing our behavior, whether it's sexually immoral behavior or whether it's economically immoral behavior. And Paul says, as an imitator of God, who is truth, resist all of those forms of deception, resist all of those excuses for that kind of behavior. We need to be imitators of God, living a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. Right now I'm reading a book. It's called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World. It's by a guy named John Wood, who is a very high level executive with Microsoft. In fact, at 35 years old, he was the regional vice president for marketing in the entire South Pacific Asian region. That means China, Australia, Singapore, 35 years old, in charge of all that, was vested in their stock option plan, living a life of luxury had a personal driver, all of these kinds of perks at 35 years old, and yet he was totally dissatisfied with his life. 
felt like he was not really making a difference in the world, particularly as he traveled in some of the third world countries like Nepal, trying to sell the Nepalese windows and all these things. And yet half of the population couldn't even read. In fact, he found out that in Nepal, the illiteracy rate was over 76 percent. And yet here he was investing his life trying to get them to buy Windows software when half of the pop, you know, two thirds of the population couldn't even read. And he went through this real internal struggle until he finally decided that at 36 years old in 1999, he was going to quit Microsoft, walk away from the lifestyle. And he started an organization called Room to Read, where he committed himself to to gathering books and buying books and getting volunteers to build libraries in Nepal for the children of Nepal so that they could begin educated. So they would begin to have options and become contributors to society. He scaled his lifestyle way back and everyone who knew him, including Steve Ballmer and others, said, what are you doing? You know, you are set to rocket through Microsoft. You're throwing it all away in the prime of your life. I'm not throwing it away. He said, I'm getting everything that I've always ever really wanted. Today, that program has gone from Nepal to Vietnam to Cambodia to India And it started on a shoestring. But here is a man who decided he wanted to really live out his faith and his values and make a difference and rejected everything culture said was success so that he could imitate the right values, so that he could do what he felt like he was being called to do. You know, following Jesus is not always a popular thing. Imitating God is not always going to be endorsed by our friends and neighbors and co-workers. But it will fill us with a sense of fulfillment and joy and passion that none of the things that this world offers will ever be able to satisfy. Paul says that we should be imitators of God. Let me share one action step, just one action step. And that is the best way to become an imitator of God is to be exposed to his word on a regular daily basis because Jesus was the living word of God. Jesus was God in human flesh and we see God revealed to us in the pages of scripture. And so this coming year here at Wyzetta, we're going to challenge every member of the church family to go through the Bible in a year, to read the Bible in a year. This is the daily Bible. It's a chronological uh, Bible in the sense that you actually begin not just with Genesis, although that is the chronological beginning, but it doesn't go through the books as you find them in your Bible. It goes through it chronologically kind of as the events happened. And, And it's a powerful tool to read about God's kingdom plan and his purpose. And so we're going to challenge all of you uh, to read through the Bible uh, as a church family this coming year. And these Bibles are available in the library. There's a suggested donation, but I've been told if that's a barrier to you participating, don't worry about it. A Bible will be provided for you. But I would encourage you to read through the Bible this year and really allow yourself to absorb who Jesus is, who God is, and to begin imitating him in your daily life so that we can be like Jesus who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for all of us. That should be our goal as well. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you so much for the example of Jesus. And Father, our desire is to be 
imitators of you just as he fleshed you out for us. Father, we pray that you would help us not to fall victim to some of the excuses and the rationale of this world. But, Father, that we would truly live for you in a powerful and radical way. And we'll trust you to empower us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.